Thank you to the men who have been preaching over the last several uh, weeks. Um, what a blessing it is, guys, and I don't think you realize this, what a blessing it is to have so many um, people in our church that can faithfully teach and preach the Word of God to us. Um, just, it's, a, it's a gift. Uh, God deserves all the, the glory and the honor for that. And one of the things I just want to make clear before we get started, we love the Word of God here. So if this is your first Sunday uh, here, you're going to notice that we, we go through a lot of Scripture when we're, when we're up here preaching. Um, and, and we believe that the Bible is God's Word to us and for us so that He might speak to us. Uh, and we actually have a free gift for you. Uh, we have Scripture journals for the book of Joshua where we can take notes on the sermons and take those to our groups. So if you want one of those, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring one of those to you if you haven't gotten one. Or if you're an introvert and don't want to be singled out, out uh, in the room. You can feel free to run back to the back uh, welcome table and grab one there. But you can go ahead and turn over to Joshua chapter 22 this morning. That is where we're going to be. Uh, if you are a person of prayer, go ahead and pray now because I haven't preached in well over a month. And so we're going to be here to about four or five o'clock this afternoon because anytime you don't let a preacher speak for a while, they got a lot to say. Um, so anyway, I want to start off just by sharing a, a quick story with you guys, because one week from today, Jackie and I will celebrate 12 years of marriage. Yes, all, all for her. Um, and um, she's put up with me for well over 12 years now. She deserves all of the um, you know, praise and honor and attention that you would give her for that. Um, but just as a PSA, I'm about to share a story that's not very flattering of her, and I have her permission to do this. So in 2009, we got married on July 18th, 2009. Uh, we went on our honeymoon. Uh, it was a great time in Mexico. We came back, and about a month into being married, uh, we're in our little 600-square-foot apartment. It was awesome. It was great. Um, it was small. And so I'm sitting at our, our dining room table, if you could call what that was a dining room. And I'm sitting there. At, at the end of dinner, I look over at my wife, and she's just shooting me like dirty looks. And any husband that's ever angered their wife knows exactly what type of look I'm talking about. But if, but if her eyes were arrows, I would have been pinned to the wall. And so, you know, I'm naturally, right, I'm, I'm, I'm like, Okay, something something's up here, and I, I know I know Jackie at this point. Um, she's not just going to come out and say it, but she is mad, very mad. And so I'm like, "What's up?" Wrong question. <laughs> she looks at me and she goes, "Why are you incapable of doing the dishes properly? I'm not your maid." And then storms out of the kitchen into our bedroom in tears. Here I am, you know, early 20s, stupid, newly married. Like, well, that escalated quickly. Like, really, really fast. So I give Jackie about three minutes, and I, I, I kind of enter into the bedroom, and I'm like, okay, what, what's going on? And she proceeds to explain to me how I've been doing the dishes wrong for an entire month now and how she feels like I had uh, been putting all this work on her and using her as basically a maid. 
And so, you know, after about 20 minutes of discussion and trying to figure out what had happened, we work through the conflict, we resolve it, we find a solution moving forward, which means I do the dishes the way Jackie wants them done from here on out uh, to make sure that there is peace and harmony inside of the home and I don't anger my wife any further. And that story came into my mind as I was reading Joshua chapter 22 this past week and was preparing for our sermon because there's a lot of similarities, and I'll share some of those later on, with what happened in that conflict between Jackie and I, what you see inside of uh, what the nation of Israel faces here in Joshua chapter 22. But really, I would go so far as to say, really what we experience in any relationship or any type of community in general moving forward. And, you know, for multiple reasons, right, we'll see here in Joshua 22 that there is conflict between the tribes of Israel. And as this conflict arises on both sides of, of the conflict, there is an assumption of the worst motives between the two sides. Not only will we see that they assume the worst, but it nearly leads to civil war, which isn't too far from what ended up happening inside of our home. Because when Jackie's mad and yelling, civil war is about to break out in our house. And then once communication finally opens up between the two and a half tribes of Israel that have gone back across the Jordan River and those that had remained on the western side of the Jordan, you start seeing some actual resolution taking place, peace and unity. And guys, what we see inside of Joshua chapter 22 is timely for us in 2021. We live in an age, guys, where every single topic of discussion now is tribal. Right? We 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 hear an idea, we hear a thought, and then we immediately right, run to one side of the discussion or the other. And there's very, very little room for nuance because everyone wants to know which side of the divide do you find yourself on. That everything's divided and you must choose sides, right? Politics, social issues, how to live collectively in a pandemic. And, and look, I get why it's easy to choose a side. Right? Oftentimes, we do that. But the question I want you to ask yourself this morning, as, as I'm talking through this and as we're looking at what happens to the nation of Israel here in the book of Joshua, and as you think about how this might relate to us as the church, God's people in 2021, is that really what God wants of his people? Right? Does God desire for us to strongly pick sides, put place a flag in the ground, and then be willing to stick out our necks and fight and push back against those who might come to a different conclusion than us. And I think what God is going to show us in the text this morning is that this is actually a roadmap to understanding how disagreements arise and how we approach them and move forward towards unity and peace, because we are going to see in this chapter that God in his sovereignty is going to meet Israel even on the brink of civil war so that they might find unity and peace and that he might receive the glory and honor 
and attention that is due his name. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to draw three conclusions with some application from these three things that we see in the text this morning. And so I want to kind of just give you a quick recap and a reminder of what we've kind of seen in Joshua up until this point, right? Kind of this whole theme of the book of Joshua has been this idea of being strong and courageous. And as Pastor Daniel so eloquently shared with us last week, really taking hold of what God has already promised to us, right? That we see God had promised the the land of Canaan to Israel. And as we read the book of Joshua, this is the narrative, the historical narrative, the unfolding of God fulfilling his promise to his people. And last week we saw that that promise had finally been completely fulfilled, that Israel has been given the land. There's no more uh, war for them and conquest to uh, take part in. And so you, you might ask yourself then, as they're at this point where they've done everything that God has asked them to do and that God has been faithful to them time and time again to give them the promised land, how are they feeling? Right? They're probably exhausted, right? They've just got done with a major military conquest, right? They're probably a little anxious and excited to start moving forward and starting their life in this land that God has given them, but they're ready to go. And the land east of the Jordan River had been split up before they crossed it. And now that they are on the western side of the Jordan, they finished splitting up that land appropriately as well. And this is when we get to the issue that we're going to see amongst the tribes this morning. So starting in verse 1, let me just give you a quick overview of what happens in the first 10 verses of Joshua 22. Joshua calls the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to commend them on fulfilling their duty to go to war with the rest of the tribes of Israel and dispossess them in the land of Canaan. And he's going to send them home to the land that had been promised to them on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you don't, if you're not familiar with this, if you turn over to Numbers chapter 32 with me, the the nation of, of Israel um, has has spent you know much time in the wilderness at this point in Numbers chapter 32. And as they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they're they're you know getting into a few uh, skirmishes along the way. And they get into this particular uh, part called Gilead. And this is what it says starting in verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. Right, So they've gone to war, they've dispossessed the people in that land, and as they're there, they're like, hey, this is actually a great setup for us. We are farmers, we take care of livestock, we're shepherds, right? This is, this is what we do. This particular land here is actually great for us. And so if you go now then to verse 16, this is what it says. They come to Moses and it says, and they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. 
for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So two and a half of the 12 tribes of Israel have decided, hey, we want to settle on this side of the Jordan River. But we promise to you, if you let us settle here, we'll come across the river with you and help you take the rest of the land. And so when you get to Joshua chapter one, we saw this all the way in our first week of our study in this book. Joshua actually went to them and said, hey, we're getting ready to cross the river. You need to keep your promise now. We're heading to war. We need you to come with us. And so when we get back to chapter 22, what we're seeing is Joshua in those first 10 verses commending them, telling them, thank you for doing what you promised you were going to do. Then he sends them on their way, says, go back, build your sheepfolds, build your fortified cities, do all the things you were going to do in the land. But he reminds them, observe the law, love God, walk in his ways and serve him. This is the charge that Joshua gives them as he sends them out. And then they leave and they go on their way. So, so in, in, in our timeline here, what we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Joshua is God uh, gives a promise to Israel, commands them to follow up on that promise, and then God fulfills it and sees it come to pass. And so you see regularly from God's people at this point, this sincere desire to follow him and honor him with their lives because they've seen God's faithfulness time and time again. And so Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh leave and they, head, they start heading towards the Jordan. And look at what happens starting in verse 10. It says, And when they came to the, to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to what? Make war against them, right? It's kind of like me as I'm sitting there as Jackie was preparing to make war against me in the kitchen, right? This escalated very, very quickly, right? As they're returning to cross the Jordan, they build an altar there and immediately Israel's like, yeah, we got to take care of these guys. We got to kill them. Now, it says there in the text that they built an altar of imposing sides. But what we need to understand geographically is that when they built this, they actually built this on the western side of the river. So when they built this, they built this on land that technically was not part of their possession. But they built it at this place called Gilgal. Sound familiar to any of you guys that love names and pay really close attention to stuff? Now, probably only my kid would remember that detail, right? But Gilgal was the place in Joshua chapter 4, once they had crossed the river, that they set the 12 stones up as a memorial for God, um, giving, uh, like for separating the Jordan River as they had crossed it. So this, is, this was a, an important place 
to the Israelites as they had entered into the land of Canaan. It's also the same place where Joshua had circumcised all the adult men in the nation of Israel and that they had waited a a certain amount of time and then they had observed the Passover feast there. So this was a place that meant a lot to Israel. And so as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan again, they decide, hey, you know what we should do here? We should really build an altar here so that on the other side of the Jordan, we'll be able to look across and always remember what God had done in this place for us. But when you read verse 12, it says this, And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And what, what's going on here is that when Israel receives word that the other two and a half tribes had built this altar there, they're angered and assume that they were dishonoring God, and so they gather in groups so that they might head out to war. And before we jump to too many conclusions and think, why are they already ready to fight from the outset? Just remember kind of the history of Israel up until this point. Any, any time that the nation of Israel had, had stepped out of line, God had punished them and they had seen that punishment and they weren't interested in going through that again. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in verse 1, God makes it abundantly clear that one of the things that is supposed to be true of Israel is that when they enter into the land that he's giving them, they're supposed to tear down all of the idols and places of worship of these other nations that had been there so that they wouldn't fall into idol worship like they had previously in, in previous generations. Let me, let me read this to you. It says, starting in verse 1, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every garden tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So so what God is saying there to Israel is, hey, I'm going to have a very specific place where you are to gather to honor and offer sacrifices to me and to worship me. And all of these other places where these other nations worship their gods, you are to tear those altars down and get rid of them because I will not accept worship in that way. Leviticus chapter 17 kind of declares to us that there's only one place where God is supposed to be worshiped. And so Israel then, when they see this altar being built, assumes that they're dishonoring God. They see the altar being built and they they immediately assume, okay, these guys have already turned away from God. They are already dishonoring him. We need to go cleanse this from our midst. So more on that in just a minute, but I want to pause and just say, 
why would Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh even do this in the first place? It wasn't as if they were unfamiliar with the law at this point. They were completely aware of what God had demanded of them. And what we're going to end up seeing is that they actually have a high amount of distrust for the other 10 tribes. Right? They assume that this geographical separation and isolation would actually cause Israel to end up rejecting them and no longer treating them as God's covenant people. They believe that eventually their children or their children's children will not be allowed to come to the tabernacle and worship. They believe that their children and grandchildren will not be treated as part of God's covenant people, and they doubted Israel's ability to stay united. Now pause and think about this in light of what Pastor Daniel talked about last week. See how quickly Israel, even after seeing the promises of God made manifest in their life time and time and time again, how quickly when the situation around them becomes difficult or seems like it's against them, they stop trusting in those promises. They quickly turn to what seems obvious in front of them. Hey, God's not going to be with us any further. We need to take matters into our own hands. How often do we do that? Right? Even in light of what we heard Daniel say last week about taking hold of God's promises and knowing what those are and all the promises that he shared with us that were true in God's word and that were true for us in Christ, how often do we then look at the circumstances around us? Maybe it's a difficult job. Maybe uh, it's a broken and fractured relationship or friendship. Maybe um, we're staring down a bad health diagnosis. But whatever it may be, we look at that and then we say, well, the promises of God must be null and void at this point. And we run and do something rash in an attempt to protect the very thing that God has already promised that he will protect. And the one thing that God has promised to Israel time and time and time again is you are my people, I have chosen you. And yet here, both sides of this conflict are wrestling and struggling to come to grips with how God could be present and how God could possibly maintain unity when there's geographical separation between them. And so we see when we get to verse 13, the full weight of of Israel's response. What Israel's going to end up doing is they call up this guy named Phinehas, and we'll talk about him more in just a second, and 10 other chiefs from, from the 10 remaining tribes of Israel. And Phinehas says, and they end up saying this, when they approach Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they say, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away from following, from this day, from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. 
See, see the accusatory language that's used there? They immediately, right, they see this altar built and they immediately make a bunch of assumptions about them and immediately start accusing them of severe apostasy. It's not just like, hey, we don't think what you're doing is a good idea. No, they walk up to them and they say, you guys are rejecting God who just gave us victory in all of these battles. How could you so quickly turn from him? Look at what you've done. Right, pointing fingers, hurling accusations. And if you don't recognize, like, hey, who's this guy, Phineas? Why is he the one that has been chosen to lead these 12 chief uh, tribal leaders in this um, parlay between <laughs> these tribes that are in this uh, conflict and disagreement? Turn over to Numbers chapter 25 with me really quick. I want us to read this story together. This is a famous moment in the history of Israel when they're at this place called Peor. And while Israel is living in this place called Shittim, an interesting kind of situation breaks out. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. There you go. Right? Immediately, right, they started intermingling with the Moabites. These invited the people to the, the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So what happens is, is Israel starts intermingling with the Moabites, and they start worshiping their gods. If you could probably uh, take a guess how God feels about that, not great. He's not a fan. And so look at what happens. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. He's like, take every leader of every tribe who is not doing what they're supposed to do, who is not supposed to be, who is not leading their people to me, and who is not demanding fidelity and honor of God, and hang them before the tribes so that everyone understands the severity of turning away from me and turning to these false gods. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, so here, 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 here's the situation, right? God is furious at what's happened. They're publicly hanging these tribal leaders from having turned from God. And one guy in the nation of Israel is like, yeah, I don't care. And brings this Midianite woman into the congregation while they're worshiping at the tent of meeting, which is a big no-no, right? Someone from outside of Israel was not supposed to be there. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So this is that guy. He's, he's kind of like the enforcer when things go crazy for Israel, right? Israel's like, oh yeah, Phineas will take care of it, right? He'll, he'll do whatever's necessary to, to stop God's anger from burning and raging against us. And so Phineas shows up 
to these two and a half tribes. They go, they go and they meet them. And when you get to verses 19 through 20, look at what he says to them. He actually, make, he actually offers a solution to these two and a half tribes. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Akan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So Sophonia stands before them and says, look, if something is wrong with the land that you originally wanted on the eastern side of the Jordan, we'll let you come back over here we will redivide the land. But please remember what happened to us just a few months prior to this when Akan had taken those idols and hid them in the tent, how God's anger burned against us and all of us were punished for his disobedience and dishonoring of God. We fear the same thing again. Please do not do this. And that's when we get to verse 21 that Matthew read for us this morning. If you remember, right, their response is simple. But they look at Phineas and they say, look, our, our altar is not meant for sacrifice or burning incense. It's only a replica meant to stand as a memorial and to honor God for all the things that he has done for us as he has given us the land. We built this to maintain unity with you not as an act of rebellion. And one of the ways we know this is if you look at verse 22, look at all the ways they honor God in their speech, right? They say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty God, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let all of Israel know, right? They use every possible name they can be declared over who God is. And they say, he knows why we did this. We built this on your side of the river so that on our side of the river, we might be able to look across and always remember who our God is and to remind our children that God is our portion and that we are a part of Israel. And when Israel sees this, starting in verse 30, it says that they see their motives and they deem them as good in their eyes. And then Phineas stands up and says in verse 31, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So here's what we see. You see a nation on the brink of of civil war, and yet God is faithful to keep his people together and to reconcile this difference between them. Right? It's like the, as if the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 11 just continues to remain, to reign true, where uh, God says this, starting in verse 13, and if you will indeed obey my commandments, 
that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that, there will, so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Right? God had promised to Israel, if you honor me and seek to honor me only, I will bless you. And as you see, both sides both want to honor God and even though there is a perceived disagreement and disunity uh, uh, between them, God is faithful to his promise and brings about reconciliation and peace in their relationship. All 12 tribes desired to follow him and to honor him. And as they've seen him keep his promise time and time again, he does it here even on the brink of civil war. And so what do we pull from this story as we read it? What do we, as we see God's faithfulness to Israel, what should we be drawing from this? Because most of us, we're not going to face civil war. We're not, we're not going to see that happen. But if you agree with me and my assessment of a lot of the way the climate of our culture is currently, at least in the U.S., we are in an age of tribalism. May not be 12 tribes, but we are in an age of tribalism. Right? Whether it's the tribe of science or your political tribe, right, or your, uh, your, your freedoms, whatever tribe you have placed your flag into, Right? We are constantly taking a stand in our culture. And I think God shows us three things that we can do as his people to take a step back and say, hey, wouldn't it be better if we sought peace and reconciliation and community and harmony and sought to honor God instead of stand in our tribe, if we sought the unity, especially as God's people, of the community instead of the disunity. And so here are three things that I drew out of the text for us this morning. Number one, assumptions are often dangerous and unhelpful. You know, there's a famous saying that my grandfather used to say about assumptions that I'm not going to repeat on stage. If you don't know what it is, there's enough people laughing. Find one of them who are laughing and they know what it is. But here's the reality. It's often true. Right, if, you, if you look at this story, look at how assumptions get Israel into trouble. Right, the two and a half tribes who are going back across the river assume they will no longer be allowed to worship or be regarded as valuable members of the nation of Israel. They assume that. They say, well, 
hey, if we go back across the river, this geographic isolation is going to cause Israel to reject us. They assume that. They don't ask anybody ahead of time. They don't make any promises to one another. That Nothing. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 22, I would say a, a different assumption could have been made because of how Joshua charges them to continue to follow after God and love him. It's as if Joshua assumes you will always be a part of God's covenant people. Honor him with your lives. And as they head back towards the Jordan, they make the exact opposite assumption. The remaining 10 tribes, however, automatically assume that this altar being built in Gilgal is dishonoring God and they prepare to go to war immediately. God had brought these 12 tribes together and they are nearly torn apart before they even have time to return home. Think about this with my own fight with Jackie in those first few months of our marriage. Jackie would readily admit to you that part of the reason she was so highly irritated with me and our, as we describe it in premarital counseling, the dishwashing incident, one of the reasons she was so highly irritated with me was not just because the dishes weren't being done the way she wanted, but because she assumed that I was doing it out of malice towards her and out of laziness. Guys, as followers of Christ, a hallmark of our character should be that we are careful with our assumptions of others. I would go so far as to say that God actually asks of his people that when we are in conflict with others, we are to assume the best of the other first until they give us a reason to assume otherwise. Paul actually says that in order to maintain unity inside the body of Christ, that we are called to assume the best of one another. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul's letter on, on, on how to be the church. And look at verses 2 through 3. With all humil humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He, sa he says to them, right? Hey, when you approach someone, especially someone who claims to be a child of God, you are to approach them with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I know some of you guys, especially you literalists out there, you're like, well, Kevin, you said that, that Paul says we're supposed to assume the best of one another, and it doesn't actually say those words in the text. You're right. But when he defines Christian community, he just says that we are to bear with one another in love. And if you've ever read his definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I can tell you this, you will draw no other conclusion other than that he is telling the church at Ephesus, you are to assume the best of one another and bear with one another through everything. Church, if, I, if I'm honest, the hardest part of this last 
15 months from me as a follower of Jesus had nothing to do with the virus and had everything to do with the increasing polarization and vitriol I saw professing followers of Christ share with one another. Now, let me stop and say, I don't think that that's something I saw inside this church. Thank you for that. I want to encourage you that you guys chose a different path. You guys chose the other way. But how many of you guys over the course of the last 15 months saw professing believers assume the best of other professing believers? It was heartbreaking to me. I saw people claiming that they voted for Biden and the other side saying, well, that person likes killing babies. That escalated quickly. Right? I saw that someone said that they voted for Trump, and so someone else would respond to them saying, well, that person hates the poor and the downtrodden. I saw people claim that they wouldn't wear a mask, and other people say to them, well, you hate your neighbor and want them to die. I saw people wearing a mask and other people inside the church saying to them, you hate liberty and freedom and you want me to give in to a socialist government. Guys, those are really big jumps and conclusions to make immediately about somebody. Especially because of a stance they're taking. And I think God offers us a better way. I really do. I think God tells us as his children, assume the best of your brother and sister and seek to maintain unity with them. And guys, some of these issues that I just mentioned up here on stage, and admittedly, I purposely picked the hot button topics because I wanted to sit uncomfortably with us. But if someone inside the body of Christ sits on the opposite end of the spectrum than you do, instead of assuming the worst of them, maybe assume the best of them. They likely have a reason. And if we follow the pattern that's laid out for us, right? one of the things we can say is if we read through Joshua 22 here and we see many of the things that we're not supposed to do, then we can assume, maybe, that the other way might be the way God would have for us. That we can assume the best of our brothers and sisters. And instead of responding like the 10 tribes did in anger, ready to go to war, maybe we could do instead the second thing, be slow to anger and communicate with one another in love. James actually says this in James chapter 1. If you'll throw that up there for me, I want to, re- I want to read that to you. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I have yet to see one political argument lead somebody to Christ. I'm only 35, but I have yet to see it. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Notice how quickly Israel reacted in anger and was ready to go to war. 
Who recently have you gotten into a disagreement with? Were you rash? Were you quick to respond in anger? Maybe they assumed the worst of you, like Israel did of the two and a half tribes. God calls us to a different way. To be slow to anger and quick to go after our brother and sister in love. And in that love, share the hope that you have in Christ. That's one, one of the reasons I have been, I think, just so disappointed in a lot of the angst that I've seen in the last year. And, and let me just say this, guys. As I, as I talk about the angst and the polarization, I'm part of the problem. I get just as irritated. I'm just irritated about the polarization. So I've polarized the polarization. It's like inception. And one of the things I think that I see in this, one of the things that I think the church if we hit a reset button and repent, what we can bring to the table is being reminded that we are all made in the image and likeness of our God, no matter what we may disagree on. Meaning that we can approach people, one another, with love and dignity and respect because they are made in God's image and likeness. They have inherent value because they are made in God's image and likeness. And one of the things I think that God does in the midst of Joshua 22 that rescues this entire situation from spiraling out of control is that when Phineas and the 10 tribal leaders go to the other two tribes and, and confront them with their perceived sin, they offer a solution, but they, they basically pose it as a question. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, pastor, I hear you. Be slow to anger, communicate in love. I'm supposed to assume the best of people, but I don't even really know how to do that. Here's a simple way. If you find yourself in an escalating argument or disagreement or tension or confrontation with someone that, that you can diffuse the situation quickly is start asking questions. Right? If someone is on a different side than you, ask them questions as to why and ask them to start defining terminology. Because oftentimes what is happening is a misunderstanding, not an actual polarization in thought. But you do that by being slow to anger and choosing to love them first. Which leads us to the third point that I think God wants us to see, and that's this. That when we are in conflict, when we are in tribal disunity like we see here in Joshua 22, that we are called as God's people to earnestly desire peace. Right, throw 2 Corinthians chapter 13 up there for me, verse 11. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. See that promise? As we seek those things as the people of God, as we seek restoration, comfort, unity, 
peace. God's love and peace will be with us. The same love and peace that you see in Joshua 22, right? God desires peace among his people because it is a hallmark of his followers. Think about, think about what Jesus said in John chapter 13. And one of the things he tells his disciples, that the primary way that they can share the good news of the kingdom of heaven with the world around them is that they be known by their love for one another. As we had, we have a great opportunity to declare the good news of Christ to our city, to the campuses in this city, and to the world around us. And you don't even have to know some sort of evangelism method. All you have to do is genuinely love those around you, especially those within the body of Christ. And I promise you, the world will take notice of that. Because you're not going to find that anywhere else. You're not going to find that level of authentic love and transparency and humility and peace anywhere else right now other than inside the body of Christ if we will pursue that. If we will pursue what God has for us. God, and here's why this matters, guys. There are gospel implications for this. God has brought about peace both personally for us through Christ with the Father, right? Paul talks about there being enmity with God because of our sin that has been taken care of because of what Christ has done. That's gospel justification. And God has brought peace externally with the family of God. Paul says that there's not Jew or Greek, slave or free, that we are all one in Christ. That we may come from different political backgrounds. We may come from different cultural backgrounds. We may come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We may come from different heritages. But at the end of the day, all of us in this room have the most important thing in common unifying us. And that is if you are a follower and disciple of Jesus, you are a child of God. And the person sitting next to you is your brother or sister. They are family, no matter their color, no matter their political beliefs, no, longer, no matter their socioeconomic beliefs, no matter whether they're a Seminole or a Gator. That is your brother or sister in Christ. And we are called to observe that unity and bond of peace that Jesus bought with his own blood. We're to follow the pattern that God leads Israel through here in Joshua 22. To assume the best of those we disagree with, to be slow to anger and quick to love, to earnestly desire peace. And if you're sitting there like, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't desire peace. I want to win the argument. Me too. Pray. Repent. Believe. If you desire winning over peace, you are in sin. And guys, I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm preaching to myself. Pray. Repent. 
God will meet you in that. He will grant you peace, peace with others. And our love and our community will display the glory of our God and attract others to Jesus. And lives will be changed, not just here on earth. They will be changed here on earth, but for eternity. As people know their creator and love him. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do that every Sunday here at Aletheia Church. And really what we're celebrating as we take communion is this idea of peace. That God made a way and restored peace and unity and harmony with the Father through Christ's sacrifice. That with Christ's own flesh and blood being poured out for us, peace and unity with the Father was restored. But one of the things that Paul asks us and reminds us of before we take communion is that we're to sit and ponder and reflect. And as we reflect and ponder, to consider whether there might be anybody else in our lives that we are currently quarreling or at odds with. And he says, before you come and take the wine and the bread, first reconcile with that brother or sister and then partake in communion. So here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do this morning. Right? We're going to turn the lights down. I'm going to invite the band up. Right? And when we do that, right, go ahead and grab the, the elements in our little packets, but take a moment to pray. And if there is anyone that you can think of, or just simply pray and ask God, God, if there's anyone that I am at odds with, that I am lacking peace with, that I'm supposed to be seeking unity and harmony with, Lord, will you reveal that to me? And then God, will you forgive me for that? And then will you lead me to pursue peace and restoration with them? And if they're here this morning, I would encourage you to do the awkward thing of walking up to that person and taking them aside and having a conversation. It's hard. This is not the easy way, but it is the right way. And with it will come peace that goes beyond understanding. If your conscience is clear, partake in the juice and the wafer. And as you do so, remember that that's Christ's flesh and blood poured out for you so that restoration, reconciliation, peace, and unity might be brought between you and the Father. It's an act of worship, worshiping God for what he's done. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, God has made a way for you to be restored to your creator. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you thought of God. If this morning you will humble yourself, confess your sin to God, repent of it, and trust that what Jesus did reconciles you to your creator. You are his child. And you can take communion as an act of worship 
to your God. I would encourage you, I would plead with you to give your life to him and to take communion as an act of worship. And church, would all of this, as we gather on Sunday morning, as we gather throughout the weeks together, may we make pursuing unity, loving one another, our battle cry as we seek to honor Jesus and share the good news of what he has done with the world around us. Will you pray with me that God would make that true of us? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you made a way when there was no way. Lord, I pray for two things. Will you forgive us for not pursuing unity and love, for being quick to anger and quick to divide? And Lord, in your mercy, will you grant us humility, patience, and in that, will you allow us as your people to be salt and light to the world around us, to declare the reality that you have changed us, that you have changed the world. And that your way the better way. And we love you. Thank you for your grace. Will you meet us in this time of reflection? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.